Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48 in just a moment. Matthew 5, 43 through 48. We call this section in Matthew the Sermon on the Mount, one of the major discourses of Jesus that we have. And there were and are parts of this that may challenge us in ways that might make us necessarily uncomfortable. Necessarily uncomfortable. By that I mean there are certain sayings of Jesus we certainly agree with as they are written on the pages of the New Testament, but difficult to consistently apply in our lives and therefore challenging as we meet that challenge with diligence and perseverance we experience growth let me say we must never regard something jesus said as hard and then dismiss it or ignore it or try to find some way around it difficulty in regard to any teaching from god should challenge us and if we are uncomfortable apply even greater discipline to hear him and know that he is right and worthy of our submission. God's people have always been people who do hard things, knowing great is the reward in heaven from the grace of God. As we grow, we appreciate more and more what we first might have considered to be hard. Let me say that again. As we grow, we appreciate more and more what we first might have considered to be hard. So Jesus challenges us with these words in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Not even do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There were those in the time of Jesus who misread the Old Testament. It might be said they read into the Old Testament what they preferred, which is always ill-advised when dealing with God's Word. So it was heard. Teachers would actually say this. Love your enemies. I'm sorry. Love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But you'll not find that in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't say this came from the Old Testament. He said, this is what you've heard. 
And he follows up with this. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Can we stop here and imagine the look on the faces of the scribes and Pharisees who had taught this and illustrated this, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And Jesus here says, in effect, you've got it all wrong. I say to you, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This would have been considered revolutionary, radical teaching by people in his time. People might have said, well, how do you do this? People might have said, this is not the definition of love that I've been hearing all my life. It would test and challenge their ability to continue to listen to Jesus and from then until now challenge every disciple. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Tonight, I want us to look first at the reason Jesus gives this. The reason he gives for this. I want you to listen again to the entire text. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to start there. If I claim sonship, if I say God is my Father, that claim requires corresponding conduct and attitude where I exhibit the traits of my Father. There is a father-son relationship we are familiar with, a mother-daughter relationship. We know about that and we see that where children imitate their parents. That reality immediately places the highest kind of responsibility on parents. To know that their children observe their conduct and that influence can easily become imitation. Bad behavior is seen by children and becomes a model and is often repeated. Good behavior is seen by children and becomes a good model and is often repeated. That's the idea here, but it isn't automatic. Baptism doesn't automatically make you imitate God. Hearing good teaching and acquiring knowledge doesn't make you imitate the author of that teaching. What factors in here is choice. I love as God loves because I've made that choice. And when it comes to my family and friends and fellow Christians, the difficulty may not be 
so present. But this teaching is, love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. If I claim sonship, if I say God is my Father, that claim is confirmed only when I exhibit the attitudes and traits of my Father. Let's take another step into this. When it comes to God's sovereignty over the weather, that's brought up here, when it comes to his sovereignty over the weather, do we think he plays favorites? There were pagans who held a very strong belief that their gods favored them in battle and weather and harvest time. And they thought the greater their sacrifices brought to the pagan idolatrous altars, and the more elaborate their physical altars and idols, and the higher they were on the mountain, the better the weather would be, and the better the harvest would be. When the weather was good, the pagan idolatrous people congratulated themselves, congratulated themselves for appeasing their gods. But when the weather was bad, they just knew they had really gone wrong somewhere in their worship. The altar wasn't elaborate enough. It wasn't high enough on the mountain. There is really a sad parallel to this in modern history and in modern religion. A few years ago when a major storm assaulted some part of the country, there were want-to-be prophets who went on the air and said, See, I told you God wasn't happy with those people. Jesus responds to that notion, doesn't he? That God doesn't play favorites when it comes to the weather. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. I can't say that a drought is God's punishment or that a flood is God's punishment. I have no such access to the providential mind of God. And what I know for certain is what Jesus said here. Now, Jesus makes his point. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Or if you <coughs> greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. What if you were in charge of weather? What if we had control over the weather? Would we be fair? Or if we thought people in a certain area were our enemies, would we send them a couple of tornadoes and a flood? Maybe an earthquake. Let me ask you this. What did Jonah want to see happen to his enemies? in Assyria what if God had left the whole matter up to Jonah 
Have you noticed in Jonah's prayer, in Jonah chapter 2, he doesn't pray for the people of Nineveh. He thanks God for delivering him from the great fish, and he goes on to Nineveh. But when they repent, chapter 4 verse 1 says, Jonah was angry, exceedingly displeased. Jonah didn't love his enemies. If we wish and hope that our enemies will continue in sin and be lost so that we can rejoice, first of all, that defies everything the Bible says about evangelism. And second, it goes directly and defiantly against what Jesus is telling us here. Love your enemies as well as your neighbors with the impartiality and fairness that is characteristic of your father. Now with all that in mind, I want us to listen another time to the passage, and then I'll go a little further. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Our love, if only directed to our friends, is incomplete. It's imperfect. And we are not thinking and acting like our Father in heaven. So, three points I want to make. Love is not primarily an emotion. It is a directed attitude illustrated by God himself. Love is not primarily an emotion. It is a directed attitude illustrated by God himself. Emotions are fluid. Emotions fluctuate sometimes from one moment to the next. Biblical love isn't like that. It is moral heart determination that is consistent it is a sustained spiritual force that keeps us upright. Number two, the love we are called to have is not the ordinary earthly kind that we hear about out in the world. I must not read what the Bible says about the necessity of love and then let Hollywood define it. Everybody seems to talk about love, but often without a God-centered definition and concept. And then third, what a challenge the passage puts before us. There is something, I'm quoting Paul Earnhardt, there is something immeasurably grand as well as deeply disturbing and challenging about being called upon to be like God. 
The possibility thrills while the challenge frightens. The perfection which Jesus both promises and commands for his disciples does not refer to God's sinless righteousness, but to the fullness and completeness of his love. Our imperfect, selective good will must be enlarged to encompass all men. Such a love will not be bought at a cheap price. Pain and agony may be in the process, but we must grow up and be like our Father or yield the right to be called His children. One more time. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, this is what I need. We need to preach on this and demonstrate this. And most of all, May God see this love in us. Let's be standing while we sing.